As we come to uh, the time of listening to God's word, let's consider Psalm 32. I believe you have it in your uh, worship handout this morning. And so please uh, follow along with me as I read Psalm 32. And then maybe keep it in front of you as we move through the message this morning. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. Selah. I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Selah. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters they shall not reach him. You are my hiding place. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. Selah. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which which must be curbed with a bit and bridle, or it will not stay near to you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, it is our desire as we come to this psalm to have the extension of the ministry of your Holy Spirit, that is to say, your Holy Spirit inspired these words through David. And now we pray for the extension of the work's spirit in terms of illuminating our hearts and minds to understand the words that you have breathed out, to understand these words in such a way that they will uh, deeply uh, speak to us and even feed us. For the Lord Jesus himself, quoting from the book of Deuteronomy, said that we shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes forth from your mouth. And so we pray for that. Our Father and God, we need spiritual feeding. The Holy Spirit, please give us the proper appetite in terms of a hunger for your word. And give us the proper set of our minds in terms of focusing our attention so we can pay close, close attention, Lord, uh, to the words which you have penned through King David, even speaking as a prophet. And uh, out of this, we pray that we would grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ, that we might be conformed more to his image, that we, we might learn to live uh, more of who we are and why we are in this world. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You can see the sermon title this morning, God-Centered Confession of Sin. So we're continuing in this uh, series, uh, looking at different aspects of worship, really following the, the way we have structured and ordered worship here at Providence. 
Some people have asked me, uh, not so much out of our congregation, but some friends have asked me why uh, in my messages I, I rarely, if ever, speak to the current events. That is to say, uh, we're a very broken culture and country right now. Uh, we have uh, uh, the inauguration uh, coming up uh, this Wednesday. Uh, cities on, uh, and capitals are on high alert. All of those kinds of things are going on that that surround the events of, of our country at this time. And uh, so I'm asked, well, why don't you speak to those things? And here's why. And I want you to know this. It's, for the most part, been my philosophy of preaching all of my um, preaching career. That although we see these current events happening, and sometimes they're good times and often they're bad times, there is something that is more fundamental and more vital to your life here in this broken world where you see all the brokenness around you. And that is the brokenness in your own life and in my own life. You see, the Bible never says to us as Christians that you and I are able to change the forces of mankind or the direction of history. There's not much that any of us can particularly do about these events and issues that are set into play by human forces far greater than any one of us and ultimately behind it all, the foreordaining power of God to determine the course of human history. On the other hand, we have the deepest responsibility to address the issues of our own lives and hearts and our own brokenness. We have the deepest responsibility to address those things that lie at the center of our relationship with God and with our Redeemer. And further, if we know anything at all as biblical Christians, we must know this. The only way that you or I can be of any true earthly good is to pursue the way of life that God has laid out for us who confess themselves as believers in Jesus Christ, citizens of his kingdom, and who know every day that we need to grow in him. My task as a pastor, preacher, teacher of God's word has always been to open up the word, to teach the way of salvation, and to teach how we grow in grace so that we can know who we are and why we are and then how to live godly in Christ Jesus. And that is why during these extremely troubled times within our country, my task remains that of directing you to your calling, your calling as a worshiper of the true and living God, a calling that encourages you to grow more faithful to Christ, that encourages you to live in a greater communion with him and to be biblically and spiritually fortified in all of the patterns of godly living, all of which are grounded in the deepest conviction 
that Christ has saved us to be those who would worship God in spirit and in truth. And that's the overarching theme of this message and these messages that focus upon worship. That our identity and purpose as redeemed people are wrapped up in the worship of God, that we would live to God's glory each earthly day and into all eternity. This morning we're going to be looking at this psalm and David's confession of sin and to consider how this fits into our pattern of worshiping God. Now the main idea that I want us to understand and hold on to this morning as we work through Psalm 32 is this. And this isn't new. This has been said many times. A gospel confession of sin glorifies God to the praise of the glory of his grace. And therefore, gospel confession should be a regular part of our worshipful life with Christ. Now, in the handout before you, you have an outline of the message that I'm presenting this morning. And I have to tell you that um, late last night as I went to bed, I actually realized that the order of these points would not actually be of best advantage to us. So point A is actually point B, and point B is actually point A. So let me read the points in the way in which I'm going to be preaching them this morning. So as an outline of this message, I'm going to say, first of all, that a gospel-based confession of sin is an act of deepest worship. And then I'm going to say that the grace of God magnifies the praise and glory of God. And then thirdly, I want to speak to the practice of gospel confession as a means of gospel grace. So the first two points really are substantial claims that I want to show come out of Scripture. And then the third point is application, which Psalm 32 supports and leads us to. In other words, two arguments and then a guide to the practice of a confession of sin. Now, in the first place, uh, in the psalm, David takes us through his experience. His experience as a believer, and that's important. This is not his conversion story. Uh, but out of his experience, we will be able to see that he confesses his sin. Ultimately, we'll see that he confesses his sin in a gospel-based manner, and that this is truly an act of deepest worship. So, the point of view here is David, writing as a believer, uh, discussing this matter of confession of sin. So we're going to do first a brief walkthrough to look at this psalm in terms of an overview. So with your hand out in front of you, if you were to read verses 1 and 2, you would actually see that David begins with his conclusion. That is to say, he begins with the outcome and the result of David's confession. He begins what David himself has spiritually discovered. That's very important. Secondly, if we went on to verses 3 through 5, David traces out the course of his confession. He begins with how God convicts him of sin. 
he moves on to that confession of sin and then to the result of that confession, God's forgiveness of his sin. Verses 6 and 7, within the context of David's prayer, he counsels other believers to pray. And then he states his own conviction that God is his hiding place, his place of ultimate safety and security. Then verses 8 and 9, the point of view radically shifts because it's now God who speaks. It's God who breaks into David's prayer and God promises, in light of what has taken place, to instruct and to teach and to counsel David. At the same time, God warns David not to resist this divine work in his life. You know, and this is actually the test of a true confession of sin. The willingness to be changed by God away from sin and to further godly submission and godly obedience. And then verses 10 and 11, David ends this psalm by repeating one of the main themes that we find again and again within the psalms. And that is reminding his fellow believers that in this world there are two humanities. Uh, there are those who reject the true and living God. And then there are those who trust in the true God. And that's a reminder that there are two ways of life. One is connected to the sorrows of the wicked. The other is connected to the joy of those who are true worshipers of the true God. Now, right now, with respect to this major claim, this first claim, we're going to focus and concentrate on verses 1 to 2. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. Now, David is describing the blessedness that comes from God and how God responds to the believer's sin when the believer confesses with truthful sincerity. And in fact, truthful sincerity is what that very last phrase is all about, where David says, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. Now, David's going to describe this blessedness in a threefold manner to correspond to his threefold description of his wrongdoing before God. Now, these words for wrongdoing are really synonyms. That is to say, they share the main idea, a main idea in terms of meaning within some particular differences. But what they have in common is David's concern, namely that he's naming his offenses against God. So the word transgression in the Hebrew uh, can, can be understood as something that's criminal, something that is the breaking of the law, something that is uh, in Israel. Uh, breaking the law is also breaking God's moral law. And then we have sin, which in the Hebrew, like in the Greek New Testament, means essentially uh, the missing of the mark. That is the moral mark the moral standard, which is God's law. And then thirdly, we have the word iniquity, which refers to both the wrongdoing and the guilt that is associated with that wrongdoing before God. So what we see then, in terms of these three things, God's threefold response. And first, David says this, that transgression is forgiven. 
Now, this word forgiven in the Hebrew uh, is a word that grants us a picture of something that is being lifted up and taken away. David is saying that the that blessedness is when a believer knows that God lifts up his transgression off of him and takes it away. Forgiveness is to have the offense removed, taken out of the way, uh, no longer an issue between the believer and God. So David is talking about God releasing the believer in regards to his transgression. God sets the believer free from God's own judgment. And this is God's doing. So it is God's act of grace, of mercy, that comes out of God's steadfast love. So what David has broken, God has forgiven freely from his grace. David says, secondly, that sin is covered. Now, this word means to cover so as to be hidden. It means to conceal so that it is no longer seen. So if God conceals our sin so that it is hidden and no longer seen by God, we are involved in a picture created by words that force a powerful idea upon our minds, namely this. It's impossible for anything to be concealed from God. It is impossible for any sin of ours ever to be covered in such a way that God can't see it or God can't find it. But when we understand what David is saying, he's saying, but God can conceal our sin. God can hide our sin. God can cover our sin from his judgment, from condemnation, from wrath. And that is what God does. He covers our sin with his grace and forgiveness so that he does not see our sin from his throne of judgment or punishment or condemnation or wrath. This is God's act of grace, of mercy, that comes from God's steadfast love. What David has broken, God has covered and hidden freely by his grace. Then thirdly, David says, iniquity is not counted. That is, iniquity is not counted against the believer. And if you have the King James Version translation or some other translations. The idea is the iniquity is not imputed. An excellent word. Iniquity not imputed. Now, the Hebrew word here refers to a mental activity. Not to a mental understanding, but to the mental activity of reckoning, as in making a judgment about something. So to put it this way, David is saying that the Lord makes no mental judgment of iniquity against the believer. God does not count or impute or reckon a man's iniquity against him. In other words, God does not hold the believer guilty for his iniquity. God does not judge the believer as condemned. And this is God's act of grace, of mercy, 
that comes from God's steadfast love. Where David has broken faith with God and done iniquity, God has chosen to not reckon or count that iniquity against him. And this God does freely from his grace. Now, in the Old Testament, David actually describes this transaction that takes place with God in other places, especially though Psalm 103. What are, what's especially clear is what David says in verses 10 to 11 of Psalm 103. He says, God does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. Now here is David's clear teaching. The believer is in a state of grace, a state of blessedness, where God has chosen to deal with his believing people as forgiven, sins covered, iniquity not reckoned against them. They are not exposed to the holy wrath of God. They are not condemned. They are inside the safety of God's graciousness and mercy in accordance with God's steadfastness and unchangeable love. Confession of sin, then, is a personal recognition and renewal of this God-given condition of blessedness, this God-given condition that is the, the very essence of God's saving grace. Now, we need to come to the New Testament, and we need to come to the Apostle Paul, because it's really the Apostle Paul who gives us the gospel connection between what David has said here in this passage, uh, what David has said concerning his own confession of sin and his blessedness. It's not too much to say that the blessedness of which David writes is the very heart of the gospel. So, Romans chapter 4. Paul presents there his argument that the gospel of salvation by grace through faith was known all the way back to Father Abraham. And so Paul points out that Abraham was counted as righteous before God through Abraham believing God. So in Romans chapter 4, verse 3, Paul writes that Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Then Paul goes on to bring in the testimony of David. So in verses 5 and 6, Paul writes these words. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. And then Paul goes on to quote Psalm 32, verses 1 and 2. So Paul himself is making this connection that when God forgives transgressions, when God covers sin, when God does not reckon a believer's sin against him, God is, in fact, crediting, imputing, or counting that person as righteous through faith in Christ. In other words, the, the 
the non-reckoning of sin, the non-imputation of sin that we find in the act of forgiveness is exactly the same as the positive reckoning or the positive imputation of righteousness. And that is the message of the gospel of Christ. Now let's, let's put these pieces together. What David writes about in Psalm 32 of forgiveness, of sin being covered, of iniquity not being imputed, is the experience of what God gives to those who believe the gospel, to those who trust in the work of Christ. God does not impute their sins against them. Instead, God imputes to them righteousness. Or to bring in the other pieces from the Old Testament and the New Testament about Christ, when God takes sin away in the act of forgiveness, he places it upon his son when Christ dies upon the cross. When God covers our sin, he's covering it with the shed blood of his son. And when God does not count our iniquities against us, he's counting them against his son as our substitute, the Lamb of God, who takes the penalty for their sins and who, in taking those sins upon himself, in that manner, he bears our sins away. Now, that's the great substitution. That's the great transaction that is at the heart of the gospel. God imputes, reckons, counts the righteousness of his son to the believer. So we are found to no longer have our own unrighteousness, but we are found to have the righteousness of Christ. And this God does freely from his grace. Now, think about our confession of sin as a gospel-based confession of sin. When we confess our sin biblically, when we as believers acknowledge our transgressions and sin and iniquity, we are affirming and confessing the mercy and grace of God. We are confessing who God is in his deepest demonstration of his steadfast love. We are praising God in this confession for all that he has done for us in Christ. And that is why a gospel-based confession of sin is an act of the deepest worship. Nothing declares more truly who God is than to confess him as the God of all grace. We move then also to the second claim, uh, the claim that the grace of God magnifies the praise and glory of God. Which is to say that God has revealed to us that which magnifies him the most, what gives to him the greatest glory. And that is the praise of his glorious grace. Now that is because the grace of God, his graciousness towards sinners, is the source and fountainhead of all of God's purposes in Christ. It's that which prompted the incarnation. It's that which brought about Christ's mission in this world. It's that which is the focal point of the work of the cross. It's that which Jesus continues in his heavenly ministry as our priestly intercessor. All of this prompted in God by God's own nature as the God who is full of grace and mercy. 
So that which makes us to be worshipers of God is all traceable back to God's own graciousness, graciousness and the working of his saving grace. Now, that's the major theme that we see in the book of Ephesians. In Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 14, that great passage declares to us that salvation is to the praise of God's glorious grace and to the praise of God's glory. Let me just read, though, verses 3 through 6. And I hope these are familiar words to you. They are precious, precious words. Paul writes, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundations of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. Now that phrase, to the praise of his glorious grace, states the purpose of all of these elements of God's salvation. Each element of saving grace works to the praise of God's glorious grace. So Paul mentions election and predestination and adoption in these verses. But then further, in verses 7 to 14, he's going to mention redemption and forgiveness and being sealed by the Holy Spirit and our future inheritance. So everything God blesses us with, all of those spiritual blessings that God has blessed us in Christ, in the heavenly places, all of that is to the praise of God's glorious grace. Then within this passage, two times, verse 14, verse 12 and verse 14, Paul writes, to the praise of his glory. That is to say, that which is to the praise of God's glorious grace is likewise at the same time and in the same way to the praise of his glory. So God's grace reaching the most defiled through Christ magnifies the glory of God. And that's our second claim. The grace of God magnifies the praise and glory of God. You see, our confession of sin as a believer in a gospel way lifts up Christ as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Our gospel confession of sin has our worshiping hearts fixed on Christ as our Savior, our Redeemer, who became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. Again, what is magnified in our salvation is the grace of God, that grace which is to the praise of God's glory. So when we confess our sins, personally, or in the worship service corporately. We are to know that this is among the deepest acts of worship possible. 
because the recognition of the grace of God in Christ, the recognition of the blessedness of forgiveness magnifies the praise and the glory of God. Now we come to the point of application where I want us to understand that the practice of gospel confession is a means of gospel grace. There is a Godward purpose in our confessing our sins. It is to bring honor and praise to God, the God of all grace. But there's also a secondary purpose that tightly connects with the first. Confession of our sin is a means of grace, a means of our growing spiritually in our relationship with God through Christ. It is a means to grow us in our essential identity and purpose to be worshipers of God in spirit and in truth. And yet this spiritual growth has, as its final purpose, the bringing of glory to God. So we go back to Psalm 32. And I want us to consider verses 3 through 5 with respect to the practice of gospel confession as a means of grace. For David writes these words. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. Selah. I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Now, in light of what David here, here records, his confession came after a season of broken fellowship with God because of his great sin. You see, a season of broken fellowship, and of course, most Bible scholars see here a direct reference to David's terrible sins with Bathsheba and with Uriah, her husband, you know, the adultery and the murder. So what we read here is David says, as his testimony, that he was silent towards God about his sin, something that went on day and night. Now, this indicates that his conscience was dull. But then, as verses 3 and 4 show, God began to work upon him in a most powerful way. So that David's description here is of the terrible weight of a heart and conscience growing terribly heavy with the feelings of guilt, real guilt that David could not ignore. So the first lesson to us from this, we should pray as a matter of daily life that God would not allow us, whether our sins are small or great, to be silent about them before him. We should be praying for the Holy Spirit to convict us quickly when we sin. And we should be praying that in that conviction, the Holy Spirit would give us the desire and the ability to repent. A second lesson would be this. David's act of confession, verse 5, when he no longer is silent before God about his sin, when he doesn't cover it up, when he confesses it to God, this is a genuine demonstration of his repentance. 
David is now willing to say to God, as in Psalm 51, for I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me against you. You only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Genuine confession is a resubmission and a recommitment to God and his ways in our lives. It is a recommitment to live for the purpose for which Christ has redeemed us. We cannot worship God in spirit and in truth when we are living a lie. That is, when we are deliberately living falsely before God. If we know that we have sinned and we are unwilling to confess it and to repent of it, then none of our acts of worship will actually be worship. There will be deceit within our spirit. There will be hypocrisy within our hearts. But when we truly confess our transgressions to the Lord, with David, we can know that God forgives the iniquity of our sin. And that is an act of resubmitting our lives to Christ. That is an act of recommitting the purpose of our lives to the worship and glory of God. And this is because the practice of gospel confession is a means of gospel grace. It is a means whereby God creates in us a clean heart and renews a right spirit within us once again. This is the means whereby God restores to us the joy of our salvation. So this is what we've learned. That when we practice gospel confession, God uses that true confession to grow us in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. He will use that confession in restoring us to worshiping him, our very purpose. And in gospel confession, we magnify the praise and glory of God. And that is why our gospel confession of our sin is an act of the deepest worship. We confess to the glory of God alone. Amen. Let's pray. Sovereign Lord God, thank you for giving us the confession of our sin as a means of grace in our lives, but to also know, Father, that when we confess our sin biblically, we are confessing the greatness of your grace and mercy toward us in Christ. Because it's a trustworthy statement, worthy of full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into this world to save sinners. And like the Apostle Paul, we would confess ourselves to be among the chief of sinners. We thank you for giving us Christ. We thank you for giving us this grace. We thank you for teaching us through the experience of David what it looks like to confess our sin in a gospel-centered way. And so we would pray, Lord, work in us all that is pleasing to you. Keep directing us, Lord, to be those who would worship you in spirit and in truth. Grow us, Lord, 
in these difficult days so close to you that knowing who we are and knowing why we are, we can give a faithful testimony to a broken world. In Jesus' name, amen.